So something that may, some of you may know or may not know is um, I met my wife online on a Christian dating site called Sovereign Singles. <laughs> it's like, that's oddly specific. It's like meeting your wife on a farmer's site or something. Very, very specific. And she was very beautiful, and so that's what attracted her to me, in case you're unclear, but I was very... <laughs> and next to her it said L.A., which I thought, oh, that's, that's got to be, I was in California at the time, I'm like, that's got to be Los Angeles, because California, I thought, at that point was a center of the universe, because I was there. Pretty narcissistic, but no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, but I thought, yeah, okay, she lives in L.A., it's going to be a close dating thing here, not too far from where I live, and um, little did I know that those profile letters meant not Los Angeles, but Louisiana. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, you know, like, I think it was like the fifth conversation and we were doing pretty well, I think, from what I could gather. I was like, oh, yeah, you live right here in L.A. And what made it even worse is that she had her past, my pastor coming to her church, so I had to assume it was in L.A. I'm like, no, I live in Louisiana. I was like, oh, my goodness. This is, this is, I've never dated somebody across the country, especially in all the places in the world. Louisiana. So we, you know, continued our relationship over the phone. Then we went to Skype, um, and and then I flew out there many, many times. Uh, we actually, our wedding like booklet was a Skype walk to remember from a walk to remember. It was a Skype walk to remember. So we, we tried to go with that theme. And as time went on, obviously our relationship got deeper and deeper, and then I didn't have to be on the telephone to her. I could be in her physical presence and enjoy her meeting her lovely family, which I shall tell you I certainly charmed at first. <clears throat> really charmed them at first. Um, they were surprised that a, she could be attracted to such a loud, fast-talking Californian like myself. But, you know, for some reason she was really into me, and I'm still trying to figure that out to this day, why that happened. <laughs> so we got married in Slidell, Louisiana, and the rest is history. Now, it would be absurd, once we got married, for me to fly or drive back to California and to continue a phone conversation, a phone long-distance relationship with her. That would be silly, right? Because we're married now. We're in person. We're going to spend... Someone you spend your life with, you're married to, you spend in their physical presence. You don't try to social distance with them across the country as if you were dating again. You don't go backwards in time. No, you, you, you spend more time with one another. You're like, okay, yeah, obviously that's the case. If you're married to someone and you don't go move, you don't live in a separate part of the world and just call them, you want to have a close relationship with them. You want to know them. What's my point? Well, my point is people have a very similar way of thinking, though, as, as bad as that may sound, as weird as that may sound, going backwards, people have that understanding with regard to their relationship and understanding and knowing God. You see, God has deepened and advanced his relationship with his people in, in so many ways throughout history, and we don't want to go backwards, like going backwards in a dating relationship. We, we don't want to put up relational barriers to God akin to talking to someone on a phone in a long-distance relationship. See, and one of those barriers is the idea that, that Christians need to go through a class of people, an authority class of people, a priesthood that's exclusively for men, certain types of men, and that we need to go through religious structures. So we need to go through, say, a temple and a priesthood, which are usually always connected in the Old Testament. If there was a priesthood, there'd be a temple and vice versa. You know, at that time, only the priesthood had access to the temple. Right? People couldn't just, you couldn't just, a regular Israelite could not just walk into the temple 
and just trounce through the holies of holies, you would either be stoned by other people or God would strike you dead himself. It would be very presumptuous for you to walk as a sinner into the presence of an infinitely holy, infinitely just God like that. You see, the temple and the priesthood therefore represent barriers, hindrances to knowing God. It's a long-distance relationship, being far away from somebody else's presence. And so what Paul is talking about, the priesthood this morning, people have confused this text, misunderstood it, is he's talking about his spiritual priestly service in Jesus Christ, as we will see, that all believers have. A spiritual priesthood in Christ, and a spiritual, which corresponds to a spiritual temple. Romans 5, 15, since we're not in, it's been a long time since we've been in Romans 5. Romans 15, 14 through 16, it says, the word of God, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given by me. He's reminding them of the gospel in very bold ways as he has done throughout the book of Romans. He says that believers should also be filled with knowledge of the gospel and instruct each other. That assumes humility. Christians should have humility to share ideas and not getting prideful shouting matches, but we should be able to instruct and grow each other. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So priestly service here. Priestly service in the gospel of God. So that the offering, he's offering something. You'd usually offer in the Old Testament, what? A sacrifice. Offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. His ministry to the Gentiles was what, you know, Peter went to the Jews and Paul went to the Gentiles. They had different focuses, different gifts. They would reach groups of people. But this offering is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, you understand, Paul is not viewing himself as a literal priest making a crass, bloody animal sacrifice, wearing literal priestly garments in an Old Testament. He's not viewing himself in that way. This is a spiritual sacrifice here. It is, he is, Paul does not view himself, we know this from other passages, we can just read it in the New Testament, we're going to look at these. Paul does not view himself as a literal priest offering a literal bloody sacrifice and that there's a literal physical temple. That's not what he's thinking. We know that because of how he views the temple, how he views sacrifice and all of these themes within the New Testament is clearly taught here. First text, and now we're going to see this, each individual Christian is, is an individual representation of a temple, and then collectively as a whole, the temple in the new covenant. That's what the temple is, and we see this in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, talking to believers, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? No longer in a physical structure, that glory of the Holy Spirit is in us now. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, grows us, sanctifies us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Those individual Christians, you guys are a temple. The Holy Spirit dwells. His glory dwells within you, in your midst, in the church. And the holy temple of Jesus Christ is... So all believers, all believers who trust and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, all of them are the temple. The new covenant temple. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 teaches us, so then you are no longer aliens and strangers, or strangers and aliens, the Gentiles, 
not the Jewish, but the Gentiles, but you are the fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the first century, you have apostles and prophets, they lay the structure, you can't build a foundation on a foundation, but they lay the structure of the temple. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. So it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we take collectively as a church, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So as a church, we are that new temple. There's no future temple that we need to cling on to with bloody animal sacrifices. No. But those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Christ, Christ and his body are the temple. Those bloody sacrifices, those were a shadow. They're, the, they're, they're part of the past. They're not a part of the future. Hebrews 10, I'm going to read a huge clump of scripture here, but I, I feel like I need to read this and we need, got to pay attention to this because this is so crucial about how all those bloody sacrifices, all, that's all past stuff. It ain't future stuff. Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, it's a shadow. Shadows are not good last time. It's not, it's not the reality. Instead of a true form of those realities, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, as we'll see. It can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Make perfect those who draw near. It's an imperfection. It's a shadowy form. We don't want to go back to that. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's, there's a reminder every year. It, it's, it's over and over again. These sacrifices are continual and constant. They remind you, sinner, sinner, sinner. I mean, if we, I mean, we already have enough reminders of our sin, but this is a visible reminder of how they need to constantly need a sacrifice of sins. And here's the interesting point. Those sacrifices never saved anybody. They merely pointed to the object of salvation, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. Not even possible. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. God does not desire a future temple with sacrifices. He does not want that. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sins and offerings, I have taken no pleasure. God does not want that. God does not will that. He does not want to establish another a temple system. He is the temple. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices. It's not part of God's will. Burnt offerings and sins, not in the new covenant. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order, the sacrificial system. He does away with that in order to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Not like the repetitive sacrifices, you know, killing animals. Over, I hate killing animals. I wouldn't, not my thing. Um, last time I checked, only serial killers get delight in that. But anyways, but yeah, I mean, no, we're not doing this over and over and reminding us of how sinful and dirty we are. Jesus Christ died for us once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, ever. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
So he made a single sacrifice. We don't need to have this system where we're constantly sacrificing, is what it says here. He does away with the first order to establish the second. That is a new order in Jesus Christ. And so those sacrifices, they don't save anybody. It's Jesus Christ who saves. All those sacrifices, all those temples, those were the old shadow realities. They point to the reality of Jesus. What's amazing is that Jesus calls himself the temple. Literally, his, he says he is a temple. So it's Christ and his body, the church, who are the new covenant, New Testament temple. You see this clearly in John 2.20 and following. The, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he said this and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus has spoken. So the temple is Christ and his body. That is the church. And so, yeah, we don't look forward to those, to any temple system. We don't look forward to any sacrifices or reestablished. None of that. We don't look forward to any of that or any temples. We don't desire them because it's a shadow. He gets rid of one order to establish a next order. And so the reality is in Christ and Christ alone. He has done away with it. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. We're not looking backwards. That's like going backwards in a relationship, right? And so it's like, don't do that. Don't. Don't go, we shouldn't desire temples, desire a temple and say, you know, oh, the temples, look how beautiful they are. Isn't that the greatest? No, it's not the greatest. It is not the greatest. Jesus Christ is the greatest. That's what's great. That's what's majestic is Christ, not a physical structure that merely represents a barrier from God, a way to get you away from God so you can't be in his beautiful presence in the holies of holies. So all the promises of God, everything about it, is fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 2, 19 through 20 says. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Savannah and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. And here's the point. For all the promises, all the promises of God find their yes, which means find their fulfillment in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, for the glory of Christ. So we don't look forward to a future temple, future priesthood, none of that. We cling to Christ and his promises. You know what's interesting is that we also look to our heavenly city, to, to heaven. What is interesting is that in heaven, you read this in Revelation, there is no temple. Because there's unfettered access to God. Look at this. Revelation 21, 22 through 23. And I saw no temple in the city. This is new heavens and new earth right here. There's no temple. It's not a positive thing there would be a temple there in the first place. It's not something we should lust or desire or want or covet. It's not something we want. It's not in heaven. It's not our, it's, it, it represents the early parts of a relationship that we don't like. It, this, it's not the main thing. There's no temple in that city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is that ultimate temple, his body in the church. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp and the light, uh, and its lamp is the Lamb. Heaven is our deepest step forward into the glorious presence of God. There's no temple there, and that's good news, by the way. Some people really like the idea of there being a temple or physical temples, but that you have to realize it's not representing a good thing. It represents a, a, a barrier, a hindrance, a block, a, a roadblock in, in knowing God and being in his presence, a visible obstacle from knowing the fullness of God. And people do. I've seen people just look at, at temples throughout the world with just such 
awe and just, oh, it's so beautiful. It's just, they get wrapped up in it. And we should be wrapped up in Christ. In the new heavens and new earth, where God himself and his infinite beauty is before us. Not going backwards, focus on the backward stuff, focusing on the forward stuff. We want, want progress in things. And the, the Bible is a book of progressive revelation and growing in our relationship with God. And that's why in Hebrews 8.13, it says, even the moment when the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the new covenant, that old covenant, done. It's amazing. Even when he speaks about it, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. And even talking about it, you're just kind of like, you're almost, it's almost fading away just in speaking of it. And it was one of the most decisive moment, moments in it fading away, being gone away. Well, let's think about it, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When that happened, when Jesus died on the cross, the, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. That's what the Gospels record for us, torn from top to bottom. That, 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 that curtain that would represent a barrier between the, the holies and the holy of holies, that was torn down at the death of Jesus. This is what it says in Luke 23, 44 through 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, where the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So yeah, it is pretty significant here, of most significance, that the curtain separates the holy from the holies of holies. This is, I mean, the holies of holies, you'd only have the high priest go in there once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they reported that many of them would get struck dead because they had sinned themselves and they were not worthy to be in that presence. So it's not like a place you felt really safe emotionally. It wasn't a safe place. Let's just say that. It was a very scary place to be in the presence of the holies of holies. But this curtain, this, this, this kind of represented that barrier between the most holiest and magnificent presence of God. And there you had the Ark of the Covenant, the two cherubim staring at each other, and then you had the animal sacrifices on the Ark of the Covenant. And so you only had the high priest do this once a year. One guy stepping in there a year. It's incredible. That's how restricted the purity of God's holiness was from his people. He, it was restricted access. Hi, I mean, once a year, I don't know, that sounds pretty highly restrictive. Now, what I want to go over here is that this temple curtain tearing, that's a miracle. Like, oh, come on, Ada. <laughs> a temple, a curtain, it just, those things rip all the time. Maybe it was an earthquake and it tore. How is that a miracle? How does that prove it's a miracle? Well, it is because we're talking about a curtain that was 30 feet wide and 30 feet tall. This is not the curtains you have in your house. <laughs> okay. This thing was a big enchilada. This thing was woven together with many, many, many pieces of thread. It took a long time to make. And Matthew's gospel says it was torn from top to bottom. Now, not, not bottom from top, top to bottom. Imagine that. And so, yeah, I mean, just to, just to how, would you, how would that thing rip? I mean, you'd have to take, you know, like a chainsaw and a, you know, down the top and the bottom. There's, you know, that thing's not ripping. That thing's like, you know, like really, really thick. I mean, we're talking really thick. And this is what uh, Philip Reichen comments in his Gospel of Luke. This is how he talks about how 
how extreme it would have been to try to get this, this curtain to tear. He says, the only way a human being could have done this was by getting a 25-foot ladder and hacking at the curtain with a broadsword. Just, <laughs> But there were always priests in the holy place, worshiping the Lord both night and day. Anyone who tried to tear the curtain to the most, most holy place, to the holies of holies, would have had been seized instantly, then summarily executed for perpetuating a sacrilege. Blasphemy, essentially. No, the ripping of the veil was something that only God could do and only by his miraculous power. The miracle must have made a deep impression on the priestly community. In fact, there are references in the Jewish Talmud dating to around the time of the crucifixion to strange occurrences in the temple. Amazing. So this tearing of the curtain, this temple veil, this is something that only God could do, and he did. And this, this, is, this is an act of God, meaning what is God trying to communicate by ripping this thing apart from top to bottom? Well, he's saying that way of doing things, that priesthood, that temple stuff, done. It's finished up. It's over. Sayonara, sucker. That's what God is saying here. He's saying he's finished with that. And, but he's also saying that we don't need it. We don't need it because Jesus Christ is that curtain. That's what the book of Hebrews says. He is that curtain that lets us into the holy of holies. This is what Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by being a priest in a certain class, no, not by a curtain, no, but by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, Notice he's, Jesus is a curtain. He's the access to the holy presence of God. The curtain that is through his flesh, through his blood, sweat, and tears, through his death on the cross. It is Christ, which is the entryway to the inner presence of God himself by his sacrificial death. We have unbroken, unfettered access to God, greater than any priest ever had through Christ. No more holies of holies, none of that in terms of a physical temple where we're restricted. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ alone. And so spiritually speaking, that makes every single one of you priests. If you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a priest. You have this direct access to Christ. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5 confirms this beautiful reality. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You know, Peter's saying that because they're struggling with that. They're sinners just like you and me. He calls them, look at this next verse. I mean, this is like, he's talking like low-level Christians here. He's calling them spiritual babies. These are spiritual babies here. It reminds me of something like my coach would say to me. You're a, you're a baby, you know. So like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that you may, uh, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You may grow in your Christian faith. Th- these, these Christians are low level. They're struggling with basic things. They don't understand basic things. And yet it goes on to say, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone building up a temple rejected by men in the sight of God, Chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood. You spiritual babies, sinners and weak and struggling, you are a holy priesthood. 
You have unfettered access to the Holy of Holies to offer spiritual sacrifices, what Paul's doing here in our text, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, and as Paul says here, through the Holy Spirit. That's incredible. He's not talking about like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I lied, so I did another Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. But he's not talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger Christians that are super tough. You're too tough. You know, oh, I, I read the Bible every day. I read Leviticus twice a day. I'm so tough. I, I, I don't even swear when I'm on the 15 freeway. I'm so tough. You know? you know, we're not talking about spiritual Arnold Schwarzeneggers here. We're talking about babies, spiritual babies that are struggling with sin. He says, you guys are the holy priesthood. You're building up this temple thing. It's no longer a role of authority over a group of people that have special access to God. That is not what's going on here. He doesn't mean a literal priesthood, but a spiritual priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. And it's our ability to have access to a, to a holy God in Christ without being killed. You don't have to go into the Holy of Holies and worry about some, you know, God striking you down. Anything like that. Because of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. And going before the holy presence of God and praying to him because we are clothed in the merit and active obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone. You don't need to see a person in order to get in the good word with God. You don't have to have a special, you know, a, a person, a, a priest to do a special prayer for you. No, you're a priest by faith in Jesus Christ. You have direct access. You don't need to go see a pastor or any religious leader you know, to, to, get, to get a prayer. No, you can pray yourself. You are a priest to God. You have access to God through the death of Christ. He has wrecked that Old Testament system all up. What's interesting is you read throughout the New Testament, there's no mention of any priesthood, new establishment, other than, the, other than which is established in Christ that he's our ultimate high priest. But there's no priesthood. The, the New Testament offices are clearly divided as uh, teaching elder, ruling elder, elders, and deacons. We don't have priests. There's no qualifications for priest in the New Testament. We have nothing like that at all in the New Testament. Rather, we have clear qualifications for church leadership being elders and deacons. It says in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 3, 1 and following, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone inspires, aspires to be the office of an overseer, which is also interchangeably used with elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own house so well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for that God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's no qualifications like this for priest. The classes of leadership in the New Testament in the New Covenant period is not priest but elders and deacons. This is one of the last books written by Paul. This is his marching orders to the church as it goes on into Timothy. And he sets up elders, pastors, and deacons here. And so when Paul mentions in his priestly service, he's not thinking of this priest wearing garments and going into... He's not thinking about that. So we, I'll read this passage again. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the, of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Paul is not saying, hey, I am some super special Arnold Schwarzenegger Christian priesthood ranking 
be an amazing spiritual God warrior, mega Christian service. This is my service to God. No, he is talking about something that all Christians have. All Christians have spiritual gifts. And, and that they're ex- exercising their spiritual gifts is their, I will call it this, non-bloody sacrifice to God in Christ. It's their, it's their sanctified sacrifice. And it says it's acceptable. God accepts it and it's sanctified. That means that God views your spiritual gifts and the exercising of them as valuable. He values. Every person here has a valuable spiritual gift that God accepts and values. And, and, and he wants you to use it because it is valuable to the body of Jesus Christ. He views it as important. You say, well, Ned, I'm only good at fixing things. Well, that's, guess what? It doesn't have to be like, well, I, you know, I can do cartwheels and heal, heal all the homeless people, or, you know, heal people in hospitals or whatever. It's not, it doesn't have to be like that. No, spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament can be rather mundane or non like in the, in the kind of expressive sense of supernatural. Giving is used. Giving and serving people is used as spiritual gifts. We're not talking about extraordinary things, but things that we do in our daily lives. So you have a spiritual gift right now. Every, every person sitting here trusting Christ. God has given you a valuable, acceptable spiritual gift for you to use in the Christian church. Don't just keep it to yourself. You let it go. It could be fixing things around the church. It can be helping our church to get more organized. It could be, it could be holding a baby in the nursery. You know, patting a baby, that could be a spiritual gift that you have. So, yeah, we are to express that priestly service that's our sacrifice, a non-bloody sacrifice that is valuable to God. And we, we, are, we are priests because, and we do this because out of gratitude for what God has given us. We have direct access to God in Christ. So how much access do we have? People ask me, you know, okay, you know, Nate, I had a terrible week. I'm sinning a lot. You know, there's got to be some limitations here. You've got, you got to put some boundaries on this. But the Bible does not teach such a strained limitation. God's words is right now by trusting in Christ, by praying to him, seeking him out, seeking out his people, going to church, reading your Bible. You can access the Holy of Holies boldly, without fear, without hindrance, without any concern in terms of you being punished or God strike. No, you can access it. And with, with, with confidence, even though you sin, Let's be honest, every 10 minutes. This is what Hebrews 4, 16 says. It says, let us with confidence, not like, I don't know, I'm kind of insecure. No, confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Any time of need. Whether it's 12 a.m., 4 in the morning, whenever it is, a time of need. The Greek word for confidence here is very interesting. It's parousia. And, and according to uh, Fre- uh, Freeberg's lexicon, this word means an, as an attitude of openness that stems from a freedom and a lack of fear. So another way to put it in speech, boldness, plainness, outspokenness in the presence of God, in the presence of the Holy of Holies. You don't have to run, you know, figlies and all from, from God like Adam did. It's not like you have to run and hide from God like Adam did in the garden. You can come to God in your filth, in your sin, in your wickedness, and you can come boldly because he will show you grace and mercy. But you're like, oh gosh, well, how can an infinitely just and holy being do that? How can, I mean, the prophet Habakkuk says that his eyes are so pure, so holy. 
He can't even look upon sin, let alone be in his presence. So how? How can we enter that? Well, I've already given that away. Through the merit, righteousness, active obedience, sacrifice, and perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ alone. We, we trust in Christ. We become God's kids, his adopted children. Look at Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons, adopted sons. And because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Not a band in the 70s there, but no, it's Aramaic expression. For daddy, calling God your daddy. That's, that's pretty... That's pretty raw and relational right there. That's not like going to God and say, thou has come to you, thee, thou, thee, you know? <laughs> no, it's like daddy. Like that's a raw, guttural, transparent expression here. Daddy to a holy, infinite God. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Sometimes people get kind of uncomfortable with the language of adoption or adopted. You know, you see, oh, if I'm a natural child, I'm more special. I'm kind of a, more of a big deal or maybe I'm more important if I were a natural child of God. Well, only Jesus is the eternal son of God. In the natural sense, he is eternal God. Son of a duck is a duck, right? Son of God is God, right? So <laughs> some of you are going to think about that later, just so you know. So, yeah, let's not misunderstand what adoption is. I think it is to misunderstand what adoption is today because adoption is a beautiful and wonderful reality. But it also really, I believe, fundamentally misunderstands what adoption was in the first century. In the first century, if, you're, if your natural son was kind of a Tommy boy, you know, a failure pile in a sadness bowl, you know, kind of like lowered expectations, you know, your son was not cutting it, could say, all right, this is your natural son. Yeah, I'm done with you. Disowned. That's something you could do in the first century in Roman law. But the thing is, and this is Paul was aware of this, in Roman law, if you adopted a son or a daughter, if you adopted them, you could never disown them as you could your biological child. They, they were yours for life, like it or lump it, no matter what, you, they, were, they were legally yours forever and ever, no matter what they did. As I always say often in Sundays, you can't outsend the coverage of God's grace. Well, here's evidence that you can't. Can you lose your salvation? No, you can't. Bible teaches you can't. You, if you were adopted son of God, you were always an adopted son and daughter of God. And so we can come to God in our mess, in our sin, in our failure, in all the screw-ups, in all the times we got frustrated all week long with our kids. I'm not talking about myself. I'm perfect. I never lose my patience with my children. I'm just so wonderful. No, you know, all the things we do, right? And we can go to God and we can come to Him. And I love this expression. It's a meme on the internet, but it's just, it strikes this transparent reality that we have with God Himself. Man-made religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says I messed up. I need to call my dad. You know, it's interesting to me as you look at American history and everything, you have um, many American presidents, the United States. You know, I mean, it's very bad. Some would say it is. It is the most 
powerful position in the world, I believe. It is still to this day. And, you know, you, can, you can't just walk and you can't go to Washington, D.C. and just walk into the, pre the President of the United States, you know, Oval Office. Secret Service would just tackle you before you even get there. You're, you're not getting anywhere unless you're like, unless you have something to offer, whether it is, you know, you're, you have knowledge of war or you're a general, or you're someone that can walk into his office that can offer the president some advice on how to run the country. You can't just walk into the presence of the president. It's not something that very few people get to do that. But you see, in the case of President Kennedy, his small children could walk into his office and sit on his lap anytime if they wanted to. It's, it's an amazing thing, and we got a picture right there. It's one of his kids underneath his, his desk. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I mean you know, you, you, the people that have kids, you know this, that, that yeah, I mean, you, your kids can just, you can be working, I'm working at home, and they can be hitting you in the face sometimes <laughs> as, you're, as I'm typing up sermons. It's never, my son Kenny has never done that to me, of course, but... Um, <laughs> You know, so, you know, it's amazing how just a, a child, a little child can just come into your presence and do whatever they want. Uh, sit in your lap, you know, tell you about uh, diamond Minecraft swords over and over and over again. You know, so those of you who work at home, you might have an idea what I'm talking about. And you see, that's not because uh, John F. Kennedy's children were, were masters at war. It's not because uh, that they were... They were able to give him expert advice on economics. The reason why they were able to go into his presence was because they were his children. That's why. And that's, that's how it is before us and God. The Sunday, we can go before God with joy, with reverence, even boldness, outspoken boldness, because he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ and his righteousness. You're related to a son in that way. You are covered in his righteousness. And so you can go to God at two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Incredible. Not because we're good but because Jesus Christ was good for us. Let us pray and give him all the glory and all the honor.